Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. I just want to read that one verse there, if you'll throw that up on the screen. It says, The earth was, out, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the water. I want to pray, and I just want to get into this this morning. Father, I thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for the presence, ministry, and power of the Holy Spirit. Would you use me today to communicate the truth of your word in a way that's understandable, that's relevant, and that's life-changing? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated this morning. We're beginning a new sermon series today entitled just simply The Holy Spirit. Next week is Pentecost Sunday. It is the Sunday that falls 50 days after Easter, after the resurrection of Jesus. And it is the day that we celebrate the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the early church when they were empowered by, He empowered them to take the gospel to the entire known world. And for a good part of the rest of this summer, we're going to be going into a deeper study on who the Holy Spirit is and what He does. Looking at things like the gifts of the Holy Spirit, looking at things like the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But today is just sort of an introductory uh, message. It's today is I just want to lay some groundwork and some foundation for what we believe about the Holy Spirit. And today, really, my goal is to raise the level of expectancy for the Holy Spirit to move and to act in your life. I want to heighten our sense of urgency and dependence and need for the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, this is a Pentecostal church. Now, that's not a denominational thing, and that's not a, a pride thing, and we don't call ourselves Pentecostal because we think we've got it all right and everyone else has got it all wrong. I can guarantee you I'm wrong on something that I believe in, and I can guarantee you that you're wrong on something that you believe in. And so it's not about having it all together. We simply call ourselves Pentecostal because we, our goal is to be just as dependent upon, our goal is to be just as expectant upon, and our goal goal is to be just as moved upon by the Holy Spirit as the early church was on the day of Pentecost. Amen? And I'm concerned that among churches that have a Pentecostal heritage, there seems to be very little emphasis on Pentecostal practice. Let that never be said of our church. Let that never be said of my life and of your life. And let me be even clearer about what we believe as Pentecostal people. We believe in the present active ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church today. We believe and we will seek a dynamic relationship with the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit. We believe in the saving regenerating power of the Holy Spirit who comes in at the moment we submit our lives to Jesus and he gives us new life. Amen? Come on, y'all going to have to get a little more happier about this, all right? We believe in the cleansing, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to give us victory over sin and deliver us from the grips of sin in our life. Amen? 
We believe in the Pentecostal experience of the baptism in the Holy Spirit where we are filled with and saturated by and infused with the power of the Holy Spirit both to live a holy life and to live an empowered life of service and witness for Jesus Christ our King. Come on. We believe that all of the charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit are available to the church today and they are needed in the world today. We believe in the gift of a word of wisdom and in the gift of a word of knowledge. We believe in the gift of faith and we believe in the gift of divine healing. We believe in the, in the Holy Spirit still works through signs and wonders and miracles. We believe God still speaks and He still causes believers to speak and interpret unknown tongues. We believe in the gift of prophecy and the discerning of spirits. We believe in the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now let me camp out on that one a little bit because we don't like to talk about those as much. The fruit of the Holy Spirit. Listen, they are the true, the true sign of a Spirit-filled life. See, the gifts of the Spirit can be faked, they can be manipulated, and they can be abused. But the fruit of the Spirit cannot be forged. You cannot fake the fruit of the Spirit. They are a foolproof sign that someone is truly yielded to the Holy Spirit. See, just because you talk in tongues doesn't automatically make you sweet. I met some salty saints. And I have met some trifling tongue talkers in my lifetime. But when I meet someone and I see them go through seasons of life where things aren't going their way, where life is difficult, and they still manage to have joy and peace and love and patience and kindness and generosity and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, that's how I know for sure you've got the Holy Ghost. Because when things get tough and you can still live with that fruit in your life and it's evident, that's how I know. I don't care how much you can prophesy. I don't care how loud you can shout. I don't care how many laps you can run in church. I don't care. When it comes down to it, you ain't anointed. You're just aggravating. When it comes down to it, you're, you're, just, you're just a distraction to what's going on in the room. If you're not loving your neighbor, if you're not living at peace with your brother, if you're not having patience with your sister, if you're not showing kindness to a stranger, if you're not giving generously to the beggar, you're not spirit-fled and you're not spirit-filled, you're just loud. That's why Jesus would say there are people that would come to before Him on the day of judgment and they would stand before Him and they'd say, Lord, didn't I cast out demons in Your name? Wasn't, haven't I healed the sick in Your name? And Jesus would say, depart from Me. I never knew You. Because biblically speaking, the fruit of the Spirit are more important than the gifts of the Spirit. I believe in the gifts of the Spirit. We need the gifts of the Spirit. But I'll trade fruit for gifts any day. As a Pentecostal church, we don't just believe in the Holy Spirit and we don't just believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We believe it ought to change how we live. We believe we ought to be sweet. We believe we ought to be kind. We believe we ought to be friendly and, 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 and loving to a stranger and even ones that don't believe like we believe. And so today, I, 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 for the next several weeks, we're going to go deeper into this. And this is all just my intro to the message this morning. Just kind of lay the groundwork for where we're going. That's a broad stroke.
spoke of everything we're going to look at over the next six or so weeks. But today I want to take you to the very first time that the Bible mentions the Holy Spirit. When you're doing a, a biblical interpretation, there are certain rules that you follow when you're trying to understand what the Bible is saying and trying to interpret the Bible. And one of those rules is called the law of first mentions. That law says that if you're trying to understand a specific topic in the Bible, one of the key things you need to do is go to the first time that that topic or that that idea was mentioned. And so if we're talking about the topic of the Holy Spirit, the first thing we need to go do is to follow the law of first mentions and go to the first instance in which the Holy Spirit is spoken of in Scripture. And we read it just a few moments ago in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The Holy Spirit is mentioned the first time ever in the second verse of the Bible. I'll read it again for you. He says, The earth was without form and void. Darkness covered the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. See, a lot of people don't realize that the Holy Spirit was involved in creation. The Holy Spirit was there before anything else existed. Some people think that the Holy Spirit is just a New Testament thing, something that we talk about when we get to the book of Acts. But no, way back in the very beginning, before the beginning of time, the Holy Spirit was there. He was active in creation. He was active and has been active throughout human history. I want to read this verse to you in the message translation, which is a, a paraphrase. It kind of translates this into language that a modern day 21st century person would use. Watch how it interprets this passage. It says, Earth was a soup of nothingness, a bottomless emptiness, an inky blackness. God's Spirit brooded like a bird above the watery abyss. And I want to stop there for a second and just point something out to you. I believe it's a word for somebody that God gave me for you this morning. Just because things seem dark does not mean that God's Spirit is absent. Just because things can feel empty doesn't mean that God's Spirit isn't present. And just because things are chaotic right now doesn't mean that God's Spirit isn't at work. Amen. Before creation, the universe was empty. It was void. It was dark. It was chaotic. But God's Spirit, the Bible says, still hovered above the chaos, waiting for the moment when Father God would speak and the Spirit would be put to work to make things happen in creation. So when your life feels empty, when a cloud of darkness comes over your mind and your emotions, when your life seems out of control and chaotic, that is simply a sign that the Holy Spirit is hovering right there with you waiting for the perfect time to act and to do a new thing in your life to speak to move to create see because as soon as the father spoke the word the spirit went out and made light come to be in that moment and as soon as the father said let there be stars in the sky the spirit was the spark that lit those stars on fire and they've been burning ever since and as soon as the father said let there be water the spirit rushed in and filled the great caverns of the Today's oceans. And as soon as the Father said, Let there be birds of the air, the Holy Spirit was the wind upon which the wings of those birds could fly. And it's the same in your life. It's the same in when you feel empty and when you feel darkness and when you when life closes in on you. It's not a sign that God is absent. It's just a sign that the Spirit is getting ready to do something new in your life. And as soon as the Father speaks, the Spirit will go to work and jump into action. So the Spirit 
was, was present in creation. The Spirit was active in creation. But I want to talk, what does that word Spirit really mean? See, we talk about spirituality, and we talk about do we believe in spirits, and, and then sometimes you read in the Bible it calls Him the Holy Ghost, and what, what is all of that about? And see, I just want to dig into what are we really, really talking about here? The modern English word spirit, according to Webster, means the immaterial but intelligent part of a being. It is the immaterial but intelligent part of a being. It is the vital principle of a being's existence. It is a supernatural being or essence. And then, of course, like I mentioned, the old King James Version uses the word ghost a lot and talks about the Holy Ghost. And sometimes we sing songs about the Holy Ghost. And just in case you're confused, there is not a Holy Spirit and a Holy Ghost. We're talking about the same thing. Ghost is just an old English word that means the exact same thing as spirit. It's not Casper the friendly ghost. And we're not talking about a haunted house. We are talking about the spirit of God when we say Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit. Now, the modern word spirit comes from the Latin word. Are you ready? You didn't know you were going to get a language lesson today, but it comes from the Latin word spiritus. Say that, spiritus. That's a Latin word that we have borrowed in English. Spiritus. Back in ancient Rome, the Roman pagan religion believed that everything in creation had a spiritual component to it. The mountain had a spirit. The river had a spirit. The ocean had a spirit. Every animal had a spirit. But the Romans, listen, never used that word to describe those spirits. It never used the word spiritus to describe the spirit of the ocean or whatever they believed in or the spirit of the mountain. They didn't use, they used the word anima. It's where we get the word animate from. That's how they described the spiritual atmosphere they believed in around them. But when they started talking about the gods and about humans, they said everything's got a spiritual component, but that's not, it's different than everything else in creation. The people and the gods have a spiritus. They have a breath inside of them. That's the literal meaning of the word spiritus. There is a supernatural breath, but not just a breath in anything. It is human breath that sustains life. And it's not just air moving out of nostrils. It's more than that. For the Romans, the spiritus was your life source. It was the life principle of humanity. It is what set humanity apart from the rest of creation. So when Christians came along in the first few centuries of the Christian era and they were living in Latin-speaking cultures, they borrowed that word to describe the Holy Spirit. They used the word spiritus sanctus, Holy Spirit, the sanctified, set-apart, holy life force, the life principle of God, which gives and sustains life. So that's why we use the word spirit in our modern language. Now, can I take you a little deeper? Before the Romans and the Latin language ever came around, the New Testament was written in Greek. It is an older language than than Latin. It is a more ancient language. And the Greek language, there was a similar word to spiritus. And that word was pneuma, with a P. Pneuma, with a P. And for those who spoke Greek, Greek, pneuma also means breath. It means wind. It's where we get the word pneumonia from because pneumonia is a disease of our respiratory system. It hinders our breath and our ability to breathe. And so it's where we get that word from. It is literally a sickness of our breath. But when the Holy Spirit, when the, excuse me, when the Greek New Testament talks about the Holy Spirit, it uses the word pneuma. And the most basic meaning of that word is air in motion. 
air in motion. That's what pneuma means. The Holy Spirit, the pneuma of God, is God's power in motion and in action. It is the word that the New Testament uses to describe God's present at work in people's lives. That's why in the fifth book of the New Testament, we call that book the book of Acts. It tells the story of God's Spirit acting. It is an action word. The Holy Spirit, the pneuma, is is wind in action. It is breath in action. The book of Acts reminds us that we don't serve a lazy God. And we don't serve a God who is far removed from our troubles. But instead, we serve a God of action. His Spirit is like air in motion. He's always moving. He's always doing something. He's always working on something. It's why on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, they heard a mighty rushing wind. They heard the pneuma of God because the Holy Spirit is air in motion. He rushes in. He does the miraculous. He accomplishes the impossible. He is the pneuma, the breath, the life force, the presence of God in action. Now, can we go a little bit deeper? Before the Latin and before the Greek, there was the Hebrew of the Old Testament. It wasn't written in Latin. It wasn't written in Greek. It was written in the language of God's people, Hebrew. So when the Bible said in in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 that we read earlier today it doesn't use the word spirit and it doesn't use the word spiritus and it doesn't use the word pneuma it uses the Hebrew word and you ready for this one the Hebrew word for spirit is ruach all right that's how you got to say it if you're going to say it. I want you to say it with me this is how you say ruach you got yeah there's got to be something coming out of your mouth you're not saying it right ruach There's got to be a breath behind that word because, again, that word means the breath of God. It means wind. It means breath. And here it is clearly speaking of God speaking, the wind of God. And the Hebrews understood that the Ruach of God, the Spirit of God, was not just an impersonal force of energy. It wasn't just inanimate wind and it wasn't just a lifeless uh, substance. Instead, the Bible continually throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament speaks of the Spirit of God as a He. Notice that. It never uses, the Bible never calls the Holy Spirit it. It's always He. He is a person. The Ruach of God, the Spirit of God, was believed to have a personality, to have a will, to have thoughts, to have His own ability to speak and to act. So when we go through the history of how these words are all used to describe the Holy Spirit, we find out that we're not talking about an it, we're talking about a who. We're talking about someone. He is the wind of God. He is the breath of God. He is the power of God in motion. He is the presence of God in action. And when the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit, we learn He's not just energy, He's not just a force, and He's not just goosebumps when things are feeling good. He is more than that. He is a He. He is a person. He is personable. He has a personality. But not only is He a person, the Holy Spirit is God. He is one person of the three persons of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's God the Father, there's God the Son, there's God the Holy Spirit. They're all one God, but they're three persons. We don't worship three gods, we worship one God who manifests Himself in three different persons. And the Bible indicates that the Holy Spirit is just as much God as Jesus is God. And He's just as much God as the Father is God. Let me prove it to you. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is omnipotent. 
omnipotent. That means He is all-powerful. There's only one being who is all-powerful, and that is God. The Bible says in Psalms that the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. That means that He is present everywhere at all times, and only God can do that. The Bible says that He is omniscient. That means all-knowing. That means He knows everything. He knows the thoughts you're thinking right now. He knows what's going to happen next week. He knows what's going to happen 10 years from now. He is omniscient. He knows every secret. He knows everything that you're trying to keep hidden. He knows everything that you've tried to sweep under a rug. He is omniscient. He is Only God can be those things. Only God can be all-powerful. Only God can be all-knowing. And only God can be present everywhere at any time. And we know in Scripture also that the Spirit has an intellect, that He has thoughts. He has the ability to think. The Bible also says that the Holy Spirit has emotions. He can be grieved. He can be offended. He has a mind. He has a will. He has the ability to make decisions. The Bible is clear that the Spirit has a voice. He is able to speak. And not only that, He can speak to you, but He has ears and He can hear you when you speak. And you can talk to Him and communicate to Him. He is, sadly, sometimes can be resisted. He can be avoided. He can be, uh, uh, you can hold Him at arm's length. But the Spirit of God is God's presence and it should be worshipped. He should be worshipped, I should say. He should be praised. He should be adored because He is God Himself. He is God present here with us today. The Bible says that where two or three are gathered, that He will be here in our midst. That means we've come together today and we are guaranteed that the Holy Spirit is here and we are supposed to, when He comes in the room, worship Him and praise Him and give Him honor and glory and reverence and respect Him and what He wants to do. Amen? I'm preaching better than y'all are letting on. The Bible gives many names and honorific titles to the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Peter calls Him the Spirit of glory. In Ephesians, He's called the Spirit of revelation. The New Testament calls Him the Spirit of Jesus Himself. The book of Hebrews calls Him the Eternal Spirit. Isaiah says He's the Spirit of wisdom and the Spirit of burning. Job calls Him the Spirit of the Almighty. In Romans, He is the Spirit of holiness. And in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, He is called the Spirit of prophecy. But Jesus, in John chapter 14 and 16, really begins to outline for His disciples who the Holy Spirit really is. He always calls the Holy Spirit a He. And He calls Him a Comforter. He says, when I leave, when I'm going to send back to you another Comforter. That means one just like me. It's going to be my presence, but not in this body. And He's saying, I'm going to send you the Comforter. That Comforter, it means He's an Advocate. He is the one who comes beside you, alongside you, through all of life's difficulties. He is the one who intercedes for you. It's actually a legal term in the New Testament. That word Advocate is, is what... A lawyer is. It's someone who comes beside you and defends you when you're in trouble. And he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and he's going to be your lawyer. And he's going to walk beside you through the courtroom of life. And he's going to be your defender against the accusations of the enemy. And he's going to walk with you the rest of your life. And he's never going to leave you or forsake you. That spirit intercedes for us, Jesus says in John 14 and 16. He says that that spirit is the spirit of truth who will lead us and guide us into all truth. 
truth that the Holy Spirit will remind us of Jesus' words when we need to hear them. Have you ever had that happen to you where you're going through life and you're facing a difficulty and just you remember a scripture all of a sudden? Guess what? That's the Holy Spirit fulfilling what Jesus said he would do when he brings to you remembrance of what God has already spoken in your life. See, all of this, these are just broad strokes. You could spend courses and years of study going into all of these different mentions of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. But, but all of that rests on the foundation that we see in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. None of the rest of it makes sense unless you make sense of Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where it says that the Holy Spirit was there hovering above the abyss, hovering above nothingness, active in creation. We go back to the beginning to understand the end. Genesis tells us in Genesis chapter 1 and then when you turn the page to Genesis chapter 2 that the Holy Spirit is the breath of life. The Holy Spirit is the breath of life. Because not only was the Holy Spirit active when God spoke and created the, the creation we see around us today, the Holy Spirit was intimately involved in the creation of human life itself. If you read in Genesis chapter 2, you just turn the page, one page over. In verse 7, the Bible says that God created Adam and the way He created Adam was He took dust from the ground and formed Adam into a body. And then the Bible says that God knelt down in the dirt and He breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living creature. It's interesting to me that they, the whole through the Bible, the, the Holy Spirit is called the breath or the wind of God. And then when God goes to create mankind, He says, I'm going to give mankind a portion of my breath. I'm going to give humanity a portion of my spirit. No other living planet, plant or animal, no other item in creation ever received this breath of life like humanity did. Every other thing God created, He just spoke and it happened. Humanity is the only being in existence that God got his hands dirty and he's got on his knees and he scooped up the dirt and he formed it and he got on his knees and he breathed life into the nostrils of Adam. That's what sets us apart from the rest of creation. That's why a human life at no matter what stage of that life is valuable. That's why that no matter where that human life is, whether it's in the womb or it's in a jail cell, that human life is valuable. It is sanctified. It is set apart because God has breathed his breath into that life and no other human no other th item or being in creation has received that breath so mankind wasn't just any other animal. We are not some chroma, one chromosome away from being a monkey. And we are not the result of some primordial slime coming out of the ocean. We are created by God fearfully and wonderfully made. And He has breathed the breath of life into us. He has given us His own life. Why don't you just take a second. Take a breath. <sighs> take another one. <sighs> breath. Every time you do that, every time I do that, it ought to be a reminder that Jesus has given me, that God himself has given me the breath of life. Every breath is a gift. Every breath is an opportunity to praise the one who gave me that breath to start with. I looked it up. 
the average human being breathes or inhales and exhales at least 17,000 times a day, sometimes as much as 30,000 times a day. I guess it depends on how many flights of stairs you've got to climb that day. But he, he's, that means that even on my worst day, I've got 17,000 reasons to praise God. I've got 17,000 things to thank God for. He didn't have to wake me up this morning. He didn't have to give you this, the, your next breath. Every breath is a gift. And the Holy Spirit, the sustainer of life, has chosen to give you the breath that is in your body right now. And it is His will that you keep breathing. That your heart is beating. It is by His will that you are alive and kicking today. It was His will that you woke up this morning and he gave you another chance to get it right. No one lives without breath and no one lives without God wanting you to live. If he wanted to take you out, he could take you out right now if he wanted to. But he has chosen to put you in this spot and this time and give you the breath that's in your body right now because you still have a purpose and there are still things God wants to do in your life. And for some of you, it is grace and mercy that has kept you alive. You know you shouldn't have made it this far, but somehow you still still breathing and you still have purpose and today is the day for you to make it right before you don't have a breath left in your body because every breath in your body is a gift from God. The great tragedy of human history though is this, that every man and woman since Adam has in some way taken the breath of life for granted. See, in Genesis chapter 1, the Holy Spirit was active in creating the universe, our house that we were designed to live in. In Genesis chapter 2, God uh, creates Adam, molds him out of the dust, and breathes the breath of life into him. And the Holy Spirit is active in that moment of activating life in Adam's body and in Adam's life. But then you turn one more page over and you get to Genesis chapter 3. It's the saddest chapter in the whole book. It's the chapter that messes everything up for everybody. And it's the moment when those first human beings decided to stop trusting the breath of life and instead they listened to the lies that were breathed from the mouth of a serpent. They stopped trusting the breath that told them, if you stay here in this garden and you eat from the tree of life, I'll walk with you every day. I'll be with you for all eternity. We will be friends. We will have relationship. We will rule and reign over all of this beautiful creation together. They stopped listening to the breath that spoke those words. And instead, they listened to the breath of a serpent that twisted and spoke lies and kept them and manipulated them and kept them from seeing the truth of what was going on. And in that moment, when they ate of the fruit they shouldn't, God told them, you'll surely die. They stepped out of covenant with God. They stepped out of protection from the one who created them and made covenant with Him. And in His mercy, they didn't die physically in that moment, but they began a process of dying physically in that moment. And the next breath they took after that first bite was a different breath. It wasn't the same breath that God had breathed into them. It wasn't the same breath that God had breathed in and said, this is my spirit I'm giving to you. It was just a physical breath and there was nothing supernatural about it. They had lost that spiritual covenant with God. They had lost that relationship with their creator. They had lost immortality. They had gained the ability to sin. They had gained sickness. They had gained disease. They had gained suffering. All in that moment when they stepped out of covenant with the breath of life and chose to believe a breath of lies. Come on. 
Bodies that were meant to live in eternal peace and rest suddenly began to decay and began to go on a crash course toward death. And the rest of the hundred pages of Scripture tell the story of God doing everything He can and working to restore the breath of life in humanity. I promise you I'm going somewhere with this. If you read through the pages of Scripture, you will see the breath of life show up every now and then. The Holy Spirit will come and rest on a certain individual for a certain season and time. A prophet will hear from the Spirit and speak for the Spirit for a season. A king will be anointed by the Spirit for a season. Certain supernatural things happen for a season, but you never see the breath come back inside someone. You never see the Holy Spirit really take up residence in someone's life like He had before the fall. You never see it. It's always just kind of a temporary. He comes upon you instead of in you. He kind of comes in and, and rests for a second, but then He's gone. And it's, it's never housed. The Holy Spirit's never housed house inside a human body ever again until you get to Jesus. When you get to Jesus, you start to see that God is getting ready to do another thing. See, they had had 400 years where a prophet hadn't spoken. They had had 400 years where they hadn't seen the Holy Spirit do anything. They were back in that inky black darkness. They were back in that place of of chaos. They were back in that place of emptiness. But remember, when you're in that season, that doesn't mean the Spirit is absent. It just means the Spirit is waiting for the right time and the right season to do something in your life. So 400 years of silence from the Holy Spirit. And finally, Jesus comes and... And the angel announces to Mother Mary and says, You will conceive a child by the power of who? The Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And when He was born, Jesus was known to religious leaders for His spiritual acumen and His spiritual maturity. And then when He was 30 years old, He went to the Jordan River to be baptized by His cousin John in order to fulfill all righteousness. And here's the key. Jesus went down in the water with John and when He came up, the Bible says the heavens opened up and a voice spoke and said, This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And what happened next? It says that the Holy Spirit descended like a dove and rested on Jesus and listen, remained on Jesus. That's the key right there. He didn't just come upon Jesus. He rested. He was there and He remained. Jesus is the first example since Adam of a real Spirit-filled life. Of a life that is totally surrendered and yielded to the breath of life. Before Jesus, the Holy Spirit showed up every now and then and did a few phenomenal things, but He never remained. He never stayed in that person's life. He never took up residence in that person's life. Jesus was the first one when whom the Spirit rested and remained. And then after He was baptized, it's, you got to watch this now, He's baptized, the Holy Spirit rests and remains on Him. What happens next? You know the story. Immediately the Spirit leads Him into the wilderness to, to fast for 40 days and to be tested and tempted. And then at the end of those 40 days, when He gets the victory over the enemy, what's the next thing He does? The first thing He does, He doesn't go get a hamburger. He doesn't go get food. He doesn't go... He, what does He do? He goes to church. He goes to the synagogue and he interrupts the service at the synagogue and he goes to the front of the room and he unrolls the scroll of Isaiah and he reads this passage of scripture. Put it up there for me. He reads this passage of scripture and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
favor. Jesus is making an announcement. The Spirit is back and He's here to stay. He has been restored to humanity through the life of Jesus Christ. He is upon me. See, the prophets for hundreds of years have prophesied of the day when the Holy Spirit would come back and rest and remain on human life. They t- Isaiah talked about a Savior right here where who would come and be anointed by the Spirit and bring freedom to people in bondage. The prophet Joel prophesied about a day when the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all flesh and that our sons and our daughters would prophesy because all of creation had been waiting for the day when the breath of life would truly be restored to humanity. Not just physical breath, but spiritual life. Are you following me? So after reading that passage from Isaiah, Jesus drops the scroll, he drops the mic, he walks out and he gets set on doing his father's business. And what is his father's business? He's healing the sick. He's 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 healing the blind. He's raising the dead. He's casting out demons. He lived a life above sin, a life of love for God and for people around him, a life where demons get nervous, a life where demons run and flee, where miracles happen on a daily basis. See, that's what a true spirit-filled life should look like. Jesus shows us what it means, what the results should look like if you're truly a spirit-filled, spirit-led believer. It's a life that sees miracles. It's a life that sees healing. It's a life that sees love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. It's a love that a life that forgives those who persecute you and wound you. That's the life in the spirit. So the scripture shows us If all of this that I just said is true, it shows us that from the time Adam sinned in Genesis chapter 3 to the time that Luke was, or Jesus was born in the New Testament, no human being had truly been fully human the way God had intended them to be. That's what sin does, it makes you less than human. It makes you less than everything that God had created you to be. Because to be fully human means to be fully breathing the breath of God, filled with the breath of life, animated by the Spirit of God. So people are attracted to Jesus in his ministry because he is different than any other human being that they have ever met and ever experienced. He's doing extraordinary things and he's teaching extraordinary doctrine. And thousands of people by the end of his three-year ministry are following him into this new way of being human, this new way of living a spirit-filled life. But then after just three years of ministry, after just three years of walking uh, in, in public, public ministry. Jesus goes and gets himself killed. And as they hang him on a cross, what does he say just before he dies? He hangs his head and he says, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Father, into my hands, into your hands I commit my spirit. The Bible puts it this way. He breathed his last. The King James Version says he gave up the ghost. He gave up his spirit. The spirit inside of that physical body, he released in that moment when he hung his head and died. And it would appear as if the spirit had finally been restored to humanity in the person of Jesus and it's suddenly once again been ripped away from earth. It's suddenly been once again ripped away from humanity. He hangs his head and dies. He gives up the ghost. He breathes his last. He dies. And what happens? The moment he dies, the earth goes dark. 
The disciples' hopes and dreams are suddenly emptied. And the world seems to have been thrown in utter chaos as the face of the earth earth shook and and there were earthquakes all over the land. See, it's like Genesis 1 again. There's darkness, there's chaos, there's emptiness. Once again, it seems like God is absent in that moment. But remember, whenever things feel dark, whenever things feel empty, and whenever things are chaotic, that doesn't mean the Spirit is gone. That just means the Spirit is ready for His next move. That just means the Spirit is waiting for the right time and the right season to act. Remember, way back in the beginning, the Spirit hovering over the chaos. The devil thought he had won. The earth was dark. The people felt empty. Chaos seemed to have won the day. But the Spirit was just getting ready to do a new work. He was getting ready to establish a new kingdom. And on the third day, hallelujah, the Spirit of life, the wind of God, the breath of life, it worked its way past the Roman guards in front of that tomb. And it found a gap between that rock and between the opening of that tomb and worked its way into a grave and it found a way back into the nostrils of that dead body that laid there and it brought to life the thing that everybody saw die and everybody saw breathe its last breath and in a moment what had been dead came alive and death was conquered and sin was defeated and the devil was shamed and the stone was rolled away and the guards went into hiding somewhere and once again the breath of life was truly restored to dead humanity. John chapter 19 tells the story of Jesus' crucifixion and Him hanging His head and dying. But you turn the page to John chapter 20 and it records the story of Jesus' resurrection and the breath of life that was restored to His lifeless body. And what's the first thing, where's the first place He goes when He comes back to life? He goes and He finds His disciples. They're in hiding in a locked room. They're shivering in fear in the dark, wondering, will the Roman soldiers be coming for us next is the cross in our future as well. For three days they've been grieving the loss of their Savior. For three days they've had seared into their minds the image of Jesus breathing His last breath. But as they're hiding in that locked room, suddenly the resurrected Jesus appears right in the middle of them. And He tells them, they don't know who He is. They're surprised. They're scared probably. They're not sure, am I hallucinating? Did I just have some bad pizza last night? What's going on? Why am I seeing and experiencing this and Jesus says peace be with you he says don't be afraid peace be with you hold your peace for just a moment and listen to what I'm about to say he says as the father sent me now I am sending you and watch this John chapter 20 verse 22 he breathed on them and he said receive ye the Holy Ghost Receive the Holy Spirit, the breath that hadn't been breathed into nostrils since Genesis chapter 2, has was suddenly again breathed by God Himself into a spiritually dead humanity. And they were revived spiritually. They were regenerated spiritually. They were born again in a moment because of the cross of Jesus, because their sins had been covered by the blood of the Lamb, because death had been defeated and the grave had been robbed. They were now candidates to receive the breath of life. That moment He breathed on them, they got new life. That moment He breathed on Him, they were born again. That moment He breathed on them, they were never the same after that. And no breath after that moment was ever quite the same. The breath of life, God's Spirit, God's presence 
through the cross of, uh, of Jesus, through the resurrection of Jesus, when the, when the temple veil was split in two and there was no longer a barrier between us and God's presence, God has restored His breath to His people. And He is still breathing on His church. He is still giving out His Spirit. He is still bringing life to spiritually dead people. He is still washing with His blood. He is still cleansing with His Word. He is still resurrecting. He is still healing. He is still redeeming. He is still restoring. The breath of life has been restored and it's available to you and to me today. In Jesus' name, hallelujah.